Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. A couple of guys were discussing the scriptures. So one was a, a Baptist pastor and one was a Presbyterian pastor. And of course, the subject of baptism came up because there's just a little bit of difference between uh, our denominations when it comes to the subject of baptism. And so the Presbyterian pastor, ultimately, he went through the Old Testament Septuagint. He went through the New Testament. He showed in the Greek how the word bapto or baptizo does not always mean immersion, not at all. In fact, it can mean immersion or it can mean pouring or it can means sprinkling, dipping, any number of things, and you see all of that in both the Old and New Testament. And so the Baptist pastor finally got so frustrated with this walk through the Bible that he kind of lost his cool a little bit, and he said to the other pastor, he goes, look, I've gone through every page of the Bible, and I don't see John the Presbyterian anywhere. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Uh, you know, th this passage, especially this one that we have before us this morning, uh, it creates a lot of questions. My covenant groups have studied it, and we, we had a lot that came to the surface. It, this text creates a, a bunch of head-scratching, even, even sometimes strong disagreements, you know, not the kind that breaks fellowship, but le at least, hey, I don't agree among other Christians. And so this morning... We're going to break this passage down into two primary sections, the baptism of Jesus and then the genealogy of Jesus. And then, of course, we want to conclude by asking, so what? How does this story, this narrative that Luke's included, how does it impact us today as 21st century Christians? So let's begin with the baptism of Jesus. You know, when you look at these verses that record the baptism of Jesus, it it creates numerous questions. And so I decided that's how we'll kind of attack this section and the next section of Scripture. We're just going to ask and answer questions. So, for example, an important question, why was Jesus baptized? I mean, why was he baptized? Jesus, you know, John's baptism is the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. His baptism was meant to prepare the hearts of the people for the Messiah, well, obviously, Jesus doesn't need this, and he wasn't baptized by John for the same reasons. Jesus didn't need to repent of sin for that forgiveness. He didn't need to have his heart prepared for the Messiah. He is the Messiah. So something else is going on here, and you get a little clue to it. In verse 21, now when all the people were baptized. So John's not just, you know, joined in with the crowd in line. This is basically either one evening or some other time when the baptisms of John were basically done, Jesus comes to John. 
And when John also, and when Jesus also had been baptized. Okay, something is happening here. Uh, in fact, we know that it was kind of fairly private because in Matthew 3, not only does Jesus see the descending dove, it's recorded that John also sees the dove descending. But you don't see that the crowds were there, that they see this. So this appears to be a fairly private moment. In fact, when you go to Matthew chapter 3, you read something interesting. This is the corresponding passage from Matthew. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. You know, I remember in seminary, my Greek professor used to stress the most important words in the Bible that people overlook are prepositions. There is a big difference from Jesus participating in the baptism of John compared to being baptized by John. The preposition here is by. He's not coming to John to be, participate in the baptism of John for repentance. He's coming to John to be baptized by him. And why does he need to be baptized by him? The passage tells us explicitly, so that the righteousness, all righteousness, will be fulfilled. This is an important expression it is referring to the Old Testament law. So Jesus comes to John to be baptized by him so that he can fulfill the law. Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill all of it. Every jot and tittle of it, Jesus fulfills. So what law, and from the Old Testament, is Jesus fulfilling in, by being baptized? Well, if we go to the Old Testament, in fact, let me, let me, before we do that, let me give you two words to help organize it. Two words, inauguration and identification. Inauguration and identification. So when you go to the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 4 and 8, you will see what's happening here. The baptism of Jesus was his inauguration, or maybe our modern term, his ordination into the ministry of being the high priest and the order of Melchizedek, the priestly ministry of Jesus. His ministry as a priest and a prophet is being commenced at this point. This is the inauguration of his earthly ministry in those, uh, in those roles. And the Old Testament tells us in Numbers, 4 and, uh, Numbers chapter 4 and Numbers chapter 8 that when it was time for a Levite to enter into the priesthood, three qualifications had to be met before he could begin that ministry. First, he had to be at least 30 years old. And what does the passage tell us? In fact, Luke is kind of different. He says, Jesus being about 30 years of age. Now, he rounds down to 30. He's actually 32, 33 years old, yet he rounds down because the law says 30 years of age minimum, right? And King David became king at 30 years of age. You can see some parallelism here with the Old Testament. You had to be 30 years of age. You had to have a call from God to the ministry, and you had to submit to a ceremonial baptism by another ordained priest. And so what you have here is Jesus, who doesn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He's at least 30 years of age. He has a call from God. And John the Baptist, 
is a priest. He is a Levite. His dad, Zechariah, priest in the temple. Remember, John from Luke chapter 1. So this is what's taking place here. Now, the objection would be, well, wait a second, he's not a Levite. How can he be ordained into the priesthood? But Hebrews answers this. His ordination as a priest is into a different priesthood, a larger priesthood, much more than a Levitical priesthood with the old covenant. He's being ordained as the high priest of the new covenant. And so his priesthood is a larger, greater priesthood because the covenant that he's mediating is a larger, greater covenant than the old. And so when we come to the book of Hebrews chapter 5, it says, this is why Christ did not honor himself by assuming he could become high priest of the old covenant. No, he was chosen by God who said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And in another passage, God said to him, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you want proof that this is what's going on, fast forward a few pages when Jesus goes to the temple. Remember when he went to the temple and he walks in there and he sees it filled with money changers and all other kinds of activity that were corrupting and making the temple unclean. What does Jesus do? Jesus does a very un-Jesus-like thing, doesn't he? He creates a whip and he drives out all of the money changers and he cleanses the temple. You remember that? You remember that story, many of you? Okay. And what was the response of the Pharisees and the priests when they came over to Jesus, when he got done, they are angry and they ask him a question. They say, by what authority do you cleanse the temple? Because cleansing the temple is the job of whom? The priest. So by what authority are you doing this? And Jesus's answer was John's baptism of God or man. He points back to the very baptism this, that John gives him and says, I'm authorized, guys. You just don't understand it yet. I'm the promised high priest of God. Inauguration and then identification. Identification is a major theme within Christian baptism. Our baptism, like we just saw just a few moments ago with Tom and Nara, it identifies us with the new covenant. It's the sacrament of the new covenant. It identifies us with the death and the burial and the resurrection of our Lord. Romans chapter 6 verse 3 says, Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in death? Jesus, he's Emmanuel. He is God with us. And his baptism illustrates this identity that he is with us, that he is the suffering servant and Messiah of Isaiah 53, who will not only save his people from their sins by making intercession for them as high priest, he will be counted among or identified with the transgressors. So with his baptism, Jesus is identifying with the very people who, whom he will serve as the high priest and who will ultimately give up his life so their sins can be forgiven. This is why Jesus gets baptized. So he gets baptized, the heavens open up. Another, this is, an, again, an Old Testament expression when 
just for a minute, the veil between this realm and the next is parted, and you can see into that realm. And Jesus and John look up, and what do they see? But the Holy Spirit, who is normally, obviously, spirit, invisible, but in this case, you have a theophany of some form, and he comes down, and he looks like a dove. And that's why in stained glass and other Christian art, the dove always represents the Holy Spirit. What's going on here? Why does he descend like a dove? Again, inauguration, identification. These two words, inauguration. Jesus is now beginning his ministry. And it is right and proper that he begin his ministry filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, in the old covenant that Jesus is still living under, in the old covenant, you see the, the prophets of God and the great priests of God, the, the men of God that he, and women of God that he uses for special purposes, that the Holy Spirit comes upon them and fills them for the work that they are to do, and then later, he might leave them. You see, in the new covenant, the Holy Spirit falls upon us at salvation, and he never leaves. It's one of the reasons why the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. But here, Jesus is beginning his ministry. And the Holy Spirit is filling him. Luke is beginning a theme here. You're going to see from this point on multiple references to the Holy Spirit. And then he continues it in the book of Acts, where he repeatedly is emphasizing the ministry and the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives and how important it is for us to be filled with the Spirit. In fact, the very next chapter, chapter 4, verse 1, we see Jesus going to the wilderness and being tempted by Satan. And what does verse 1 say? It says, that, uh, let me find it. Uh, lost my place. Sorry about that. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. So he falls upon him in this way because this is the beginning of his ministry. It's right for him to be filled with the Spirit. And it identifies him in a very important way. Let me, church, let me ask you a question. What is the word Christ or Messiah? What do those words mean? Anybody? Anointed one. Yes, the anointed one. And so the question is, with whom is the Messiah supposed to be anointed? Or with what is he supposed to be anointed? Well, the Old Testament prophecies tell us. So, for example, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. This event where the Holy Spirit is falling and descending upon Jesus is affirming his identity as the Messiah. Important moment. So then Jesus, being baptized, Holy, heavens open, Holy Spirit descends upon him with all the significance of that, and Jesus and John then hear the voice of God. So what's the significance of this? A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This statement from God the Father joins two Old Testament passages that would have been very familiar to the original audience, to the Israelite people. You are my beloved son. This is from a messianic psalm. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, with whom I am well pleased. Again, a messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 42, where we are introduced to a radical idea about the Messiah, that he is going to be the suffering servant 
of God. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Remember that word, Messiah, Christ, the anointed one. This declaration from God affirms that Jesus' baptism is the anointing is due because he is the, is, is his anointing is because he is the prophesied promised Messiah. But he's going to be the suffering Messiah, the suffering king. His ministry and his role is going to be different than what the Israelites expect. Instead, it's going to be according to God's plan. And what's so important about this particular declaration and the bringing in of Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, is that this declaration affirms the eternal sonship, the divine sonship of God, of Jesus. He is God the Son. In fact, if you think about it, this passage is beautiful because what does it show us in a very graphical manner? The Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is God the Son, the beloved eternal Son. He's fully God, and he has come to redeem us from our sins. The baptism of Jesus, it's significant. So how about the genealogy of Jesus? Verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Again, we need to ask questions of this passage. The biggest question, I think, that gets asked is why is this genealogy of Luke's so radically different than Matthew's? I mean, it's very different. Uh, you have many more generations, I think at least a couple of dozen more generations in the Luke genealogy than you do in Matthew's genealogy. Matthew starts with Abraham, and he says, you know, a, you know, Abraham, Isaac, you know uh, Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac fathered Jacob, and he goes from the perspective of the father, whereas Luke starts with Jesus, and from the perspective of the son, goes back. Why, did, why are the differences here? What are, what are these discrepancies about? Well, one thing that we need to recognize is that this discrepancy between the two actually helps us. It helps us to see that in the genealogies, the word son of does not always mean biological son. It's really better to interpret it as a descendant of. In fact, it's easily shown between these two genealogies and other genealogies in the Bible that you have people being called the son of so-and-so when he's actually the grandson or the great-great-grandson or more. And so this is why those who rely upon the genealogies to age the earth, for example, are making a huge mistake because these are not an exact chronological you know, dating of, of human history, not at all. Instead, the genealogies were used and composed in a way that fit the need and the theme of the author. And that's why you see discrepancies between Matthew and Luke. Matthew it's, he gives his gospel to the Jews. He has an objective. His objective is to convince them that Jesus is the, the legitimate right king of the Jews. And so he, what he gives us is the, the royal line through David, the, the, kind of like the, the succession of the throne line. And then he connects it 
to Joseph and Jesus. So you can see that if it worked out a certain way, people, you know, heirs die, whatever, Jesus has the right to become the king of the Jews. That's his concern. Luke has a very different concern that we'll see in a moment. Regardless, there's a ton of discrepancies. And so why? How do you explain the genealogical discrepancies? Are there errors in the Bible? That's, the, that's really what you're getting at. Is there, is there an issue here? No, not necessarily. Um, there are many plausible reasons why these genealogies would be different. For example, uh, Matthew could very well be showing us Joseph's genealogy, whereas Luke, who has already stressed Mary... And, and we believe that he got details of Jesus' life from Mary, that he interviewed Mary. This genealogy very much could be Mary's genealogy and not Joseph. So in verse 23, when it says, being a son, uh, and literally it's Jesus being a son as was supposed of Joseph, but not really. Those parentheses, that's what it means. We've already been told that Jesus is not the biological son of Joseph, right? We already know that, the virgin birth. And so in this genealogy, when he says, um, but, you know, not uh, as, as was supposed, but not really. That's what Luke is reminding us of. And so then when he says Eli, well, according to different sources, some would look even to the Jewish Talmud, Eli is the name of Mary's father, the grandfather of Jesus. And so after explaining that he's not re the real biological son of Joseph, Luke goes on in this genealogy to the first male link within the genealogical line, Eli. If this is true, by the way, think about it. If this is true, this means that Joseph and Mary are cousins and, you know, many, many times removed. But this also means that Jesus has a double claim on the throne to David. And how about that? That's cool. Plausible, very, very plausible reason. Uh, it also could be that Luke is showing the biological ancestry, not the royal line, which Matthew is showing. So Jesus descends from David's son, Nathan, not Solomon. And Solomon is who is the, the, the royal line runs through. But again, if the royal line dies out, then the other line kicks in. That's how, you know, we see that in England. You know, you got Prince William and then you got the spare, Harry, right? And that's how all that works out. I'll, I'll leave that alone. Um, you also, and you could have the, the idea here that there are actually two, Joseph had two fathers. Uh, there's a couple of ways this could be. Eli could be Mary's uh, dad. He doesn't have a son when Joseph marries uh, uh, Mary. That's hard to say. When he was wed to Mary, uh, Eli adopts Joseph as his legal heir. This is very common. When, there, when the man did not have a son, he would adopt the, the son-in-law as his son. Uh, or it could be that Joseph is the result of a leveret marriage. In Matthew, when it says Jacob is the father of Joseph, that could actually be a leveret form of father. And those of you who are familiar with the leveret uh, law in the Old Testament, when a man could, died without a son, then his brother was responsible to, have, to come and have a relationship with the wife so that an heir could be produced. And so it's possible. So in other words, don't get, don't get wrapped up into it, but Joseph could have two different fathers in some way, and that's being reflected. Why, now, look, if your head's spinning and you're going, okay, we've gone down a rabbit hole, I get you. By the way, there's like six other ex uh, explanations that I'm not giving you this morning. So everybody say, thank you, Jerry. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. But there's a, an important point here, an important point. 
students. You're going to go to college, some of you, sooner than later. And you're going to have, guarantee you're going to have, if you go to a, a state college or a liberal Christian college, you're going to have a snarky professor who's going to stand up there with all of his smugness and talk about how you can't trust the Bible because there's all kinds of contradictions in the Bible. And this is one of those passages they'll turn to. And what I want you to hear today is that when there seems to be a discrepancy and error in the Bible, don't bite on that right away because there are so many times very plausible explanations for the discrepancies that you read in the Bible, like these that we've seen with these genealogies. Another important question, why is this genealogy so important to be included in the scriptures? And why does he put it here after his baptism and not like at the beginning of the book like Matthew does? So in the cultures around the world, uh, not maybe not America, but in South America, Far East, in Africa, Middle East. Who are your people? That's an important question. In a lot of cultures today, who are your people? And how you answer that question is still an important question. They want to know. I was raised in the South. Old timers would look at me sometimes and go, who are your people? And they want to know what, what's my family line because that could tell them a whole lot right away. Am I a rascal or am I respectable? Who are your people? It's an important question, and it was very important to the first century Israelites, and it's important to us. Jesus' genealogy does three very important things. First of all, it establishes his ancestral link to King David. Just talked about that. Verse 31, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz. It was vitally important to the Israelite people that you could prove the lineage of the Messiah that he is in the line of King David. That was a, verify, a verification that was needed to say, that's the Messiah, that's the eternal king. Very important. It established that link. It established the link between the father of faith and how this person is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Verse 33, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac the son of Abraham. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of these Abrahamic covenant promises. And then thirdly, it establishes his solidarity with all of humanity, not just Israel. Verse 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Interestingly, Jewish genealogies uh, do not normally include the link. In fact, they don't do it at all when it's talking about an individual. They do not include the link to God. So why does Luke include the link to God? Why does he do this? Well, earlier we saw the declaration of God over Jesus. You are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased that established that Jesus is the divine son. He's God the son who's taken human flesh. He is God with all of the meaning and the significance of that word God. In the fullest sense, he shares the entire nature of God. Yet, at the same time, he is the son of Adam who was created by God. He is fully God, but he is also fully 
human at the same time. Two natures and one person. And because of this, he's uniquely qualified to be our savior. He's the son of Adam. It's important. Who is the son of God, created by God. See, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. The scriptures tell us the first man, Adam, became a living person, but the last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. For some of you here this morning, you have yet to commit your life to Christ. And I hope you hear what Luke is saying to you this morning. Jesus is the promised seed That all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam sinned and brought death and devastation into our world, God promised that one day the seed of Adam would come who would undo and make right all of the devastation that Adam brought into the world. And this means that Jesus and only Jesus can be the savior of this world. Jesus is for everyone And Jesus is for you. And the issue is that right now, your spiritual ancestry is dominated by the first Adam. From him, you have inherited sin and death and the judgment of your creator. But the good news of the gospel is that your spiritual ancestry can be changed. It can be characterized by the second Adam, who is Jesus Christ. And so this morning, if you feel and sense a yearning in your heart, a desire to understand Christ more, to have a relationship with God that will change your life, I hope that you'll act on that desire. Come see me after the service. Let's talk about your questions. Let's help you to understand why others, even this morning, have professed their faith through baptism and what it means to commit your life to Christ. Come see me. Come see the Stephen ministers and pastors at the care table in the lobby. We are here for you this morning. If, if you don't know Christ, this is the most important application you can get out of this story. But how about those of us who do know Christ? Christian, church, so what? So what? How does the baptism and story and the ancestry of Jesus impact us? I would suggest that there's two very important gospel applications for us to consider. First of all, the story speaks to all of us who struggle with guilt and shame. This story speaks to all of us who struggle with guilt and shame. I I think it was about 30 years ago. I was a pastor at a church in the middle of nowhere, Florida. And uh, I was sitting at the kitchen table inside of a mobile home that did not have air conditioning in the height of the summer heat. It was like a sweat box. Thankfully, I weighed a lot less back then. And as I was at that table, I heard a story from a man I never have forgotten. He was old enough to be my father. And he told me the story of how as a child and as a teenager, he was repeatedly abused physically and sexually by many different men 
some of whom were even in his family. And, and he told how this began, this put him on a journey that was just where he was filled with loathing, self-hatred, incredible amount of guilt and shame. And he tried to drown out that guilt and shame. As a young man, he was, participated in athletics. He, he went to college. He got into a career. He threw himself into his career. He did well. He made money. He started a business. He made more money. He bought all the things that you could possibly buy. He married several different women. He gave himself over to a, a sexualized lifestyle. He had multiple children from different women. He, had, he just threw himself into this kind of life. And the voices of guilt and shame could not be silenced. So he turned to alcohol. And as a young man, he began to drink, and then he began to drink more and more and more. And ultimately, he was so addicted to alcohol, it ended every one of his marriages. It blew every, all of his relationships up. None of his exes would talk to him. His children wanted nothing to do with him. He ultimately went bankrupt. He lost everything. He was homeless when he walked by a church one day and he saw a sign out front advertising recovery for those who were addicted to alcohol. And he went in. And there he met a man who would ultimately become his sponsor. But more importantly, he led him to Jesus Christ. And it changed everything. It changed everything. Church, Jesus is the cure for the guilt and the shame that we carry around with us. You know, Brene Brown has written extensively about shame, and she says, if you put shame in a Petri dish, it needs three things to grow exponentially, secrecy, silence, and judgment. If you put the same amount of shame in a Petri dish and douse it with empathy, it cannot survive. And what do the scriptures tell us? In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus' baptism reminds us that he is our great high priest. And he is not some priest who is segregated from the people. Not at all. He stands in solidarity with us. He can heal us because he is the eternal divine son, God the son who's taken on flesh. He is all powerful. He is all knowing. He is all merciful and all loving and all gracious. Listen to me this morning. This is who empathizes with us in our guilt and in our shame. And he can deliver us from that. And so when those voices of shame come screaming in your ear, know that that is the voice of Satan and his evil forces because Jesus never brings shame. Repeat that with me. Jesus never brings shame. He brings grace and mercy because he's the great high priest. Don't miss this beautiful application from the passage. One final application, and that's our takeaway truth this morning. Because of our baptism into Jesus, God is always pleased with us. Can I ask you this morning? You don't, don't answer, don't raise your hand. Deep down in your heart, right now, just as you are right now, 
Do you believe that God is absolutely pleased and delighted in you? Some of you might say yes. But I bet a lot of us would say no. And you know why we say no? Well, look at all sin I did this week. How can God be pleased with me? Understand, God is not always pleased in what we do, which is why God, the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us, then convicts us of our sin and compels us to confess and repent. But do not doubt for one minute that God is pleased with you, child of God in Jesus Christ. Not for a moment. We do not earn God's pleasure by how how well we do hour to hour or day to day or week to week. God is pleased with us not by how well we do, but by how well Jesus did when he stood in our place. God is not delighted over us because of how well we obey. God is delighted and pleased with us because of how perfectly Jesus obeyed when he took our place on the cross. And so this week, newsflash, every single one of us are going to blow it. We're going to sin this week. Some of us are going to sin completely unintentionally. (laughs) Sometimes we don't even know that we've sinned. That's how dumb we are about it. And in other times, we are just going to flat out make a decision to sin, defy what we know is right. And when that happens, turn to Jesus. Run to Jesus who empathizes with your frailty. Come before God with great faith and great expectation knowing that he delights in you because you too are his beloved son and whom he is well-pleased, his beloved daughter and whom he is well-pleased because you are in Christ Jesus, our great high priest. This is the good news of the gospel. Amen? Amen. Amen. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came and you lived that life that we were to live You made us lovable and delightful to our creator. I pray for the one who doesn't know you, that Lord Jesus. Would you pursue them? Would you help them just wear them out and wear them down out of your grace and mercy for them? Help them to see the need for you as Savior. And Lord Jesus, give us the grace that we need this week to shut out the screams of Satan who brings shame and help us to rejoice and enjoy the favor and the approval that we have with our Heavenly Father because you stood in our place. For this we praise you. In your name we pray. Amen.